I'm Gina Asher, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is Sandra Steingraber, ecologist, author, and cancer survivor, and an authority on the environmental links to cancer and human health. She's the author of Living Downstream, an ecologist's personal investigation of cancer and the environment, published in 1997 with a second edition released in 2010. Welcome, Sandra Steingraber. Thanks for having me. Living Downstream was the first book to bring together data on toxic releases with data from U.S. cancer registries. The book also is hailed as the first to present cancer as a human rights issue. What does that mean exactly? Well, we we in the United States collect a lot of data, and we have kind of two big piles of it. We have toxics release inventory data, which tell us about toxic chemicals that are released into our shared environment from factories, from toxic waste sites, and so forth. And, and those data let us know how many pounds of what kind of chemical go into air, water, soil, and so on. And then we also collect data on who gets cancer. And that was a gift of President Nixon. In one of his last acts of office, he declared the war on cancer. And um, then Congress mandated that each state in the union should count the people who have cancer at the time of their diagnosis. And so the cancer registry represents a kind of sports almanac, if you will, of all of the cancer diagnoses in that state. So if you're diagnosed here in the, in the state of Indiana with cancer, a report about you and your tumor goes to the cancer registrar in the state uh, Department of Health. And, that, and then you become one data point in this vast story of cancer in Indiana, which tell us all collectively, those data tell us what the time trends on cancer look like, um, where there are cancer hotspots, and so forth. And so we have this environmental data collected by our Environmental Protection Agency. We have this health data collected by our Departments of Health. And so my self-appointed task with Living Downstream was to build a bridge between these two piles of data. So I was interested in looking at the time trend data and the spatial cluster analysis to see the kind of changing, moving shadow that cancer casts across the landscape. So what those data show us is that cancer is not a random tragedy, and that, in fact, there are associations between certain kinds of chemicals and certain kinds of cancers. What about the human rights issue part? Well, this is where my life as a cancer patient comes into play. So I'm not only a biologist who is doing this as a kind of an interesting research project, but I myself was diagnosed with bladder cancer at the age of 20. And I am one data point in a cluster of cancers in my hometown. And uh, uh, my discovery that I was not the only person as a young woman to get cancer, that this was a collective story, that autobiographical experience really informed my science. Um, so the story of Living Downstream, both the film and the book, is, is in part the story of my return home to my own hometown to become an environmental detective there. So it's really two books in one and two films in one, um, in that it's my best attempt as a biologist to describe, using I hope plain spoken English, what we know about the links between cancer and the environment. What What is the role of the environment in the story of human cancer? So I try to ac answer that biologically. But it's also the autobiographical story of me as a 30-something-year-old scientist going back with this, with the help of a wonderful postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard to my hometown to, to begin the research of understanding what's in the hometown drinking water wells to answer that question that all cancer patients ask, why me? So the film and the book both have scenes of me kind of um, piecing, this to, piecing this together and looking at my own toxics release inventory data, looking at a particular cluster of cancers in uh, in an unincorporated area of my town called Normandale. So in two different ways, the book and the film kind of uh, uh, take you to those places. And you're talking about the documentary that follows you as you travel across North America to talk about cancer and environmental links. Um, and I believe it, it was released in 2010 also? It was released in 2010, and then the second edition of Living Downstream was intended to bring the science of the book you know, up current with what we show 
in the film. So the film went on its uh, film festival tour, won some nice awards, went out into theaters, uh, and then will be uh, screened at the Lincoln Center in, in New York City. What do the documentary and the second edition of the book tell us about progress or lack thereof in changing policy or even attitudes about environment and cancer? Well, a lot has changed between the first and second edition of the book in terms of awareness. So I felt in 1997 that my job was to kind of ring the alarm bell about these things and introduce the idea that environment plays a role in cancer to my readers. Um, the second edition of the book, my task was a little bit different because I think this understanding is pretty deep and broad at this point. And so I was really interested in two things. One was to let my readers know what they could do um, politically uh, about the problem. And at this point, of course, the president's cancer panel itself has released its own large monograph on cancer and the environment. Uh, and those findings um, corroborate my, my own. And I had the opportunity to actually testify f- before the president's cancer panel and play a role in that in that report, which really concludes that the, the, the environment plays an underappreciated role in the story of human cancer and a much bigger role than has been previously acknowledged. And uh, the, the panel took the unusual step of urging President Obama to use the power of his office to remove carcinogens from air, food, and water because of the grievous effect they were having on the American people, both in terms of you know the suffering caused by cancer, but also the, the medical expenses. I mean, all, all these the cancer is the most expensive thing you can have happen to you medically, and altogether, they're you know that part of our drag on our economy is is chronic medical illness, of which cancer plays a, hu- a huge role, and so that firmly placed. Um, the environmental links to cancer kind of on the national policy stage. So I'm really interested in my fellow cancer patients playing a role as political activists in in doing the, the, the single most rational thing we could do, uh, which is also expressed in, in Living Downstream and the President's Cancer Panel report, and that is the, the most rational and meaningful way to prevent cancer is to prevent people from having exposure to cancer-causing agents. And the way to do that is to divorce our economy from its dependency on on carcinogens. And so if we're using carcinogens to get something done, let's take a look at what task that is and then redesign the process through green chemistry and green engineering so we no longer need to to use a carcinogen. Let's do it in some other way. That That is, I think, a human rights task um, because it's wrong to kill people in order to solve an economic problem. Uh, and so if we can do it in a non-toxic way, then I think we're morally obligated to take the non-toxic path. In your talks and in your writing, I know you kind of liken this to understanding um, the stock market, to having a full understanding of how the economy works, yet people don't understand the relationship in toxicities and environment and health. Um, how can you How can you promote that when it seems like we're living in a culture that's all about fossil fuels and economy and jobs and a lot of the areas affected by environmental concerns, people say, but we need these jobs here. It's an immediacy instead of a long-range looking at what will happen. How do you answer that? Well, some of these jobs are killing jobs, right? And so the jobs created, for example, um, in the oil and gas industry and and this newish technology called fracking is something I've turned my attention to in the last couple of years and I've been writing exclusively about now for a year or so. When you take a look at the jobs created and you look at the on-the-job fatality rates, which the Centers for Disease Control com- compile, um, you, you discover that there's this on-the-job fatality rate that's sevenfold that of other injuries, more than twice as high as police officers. And so, and we're just talking about things like vehicular accidents, head trauma, and injury. And if you don't die, you end up on workman's comp and you're, you know, very likely very disabled. In addition, these jobs expose workers to inherently toxic chemicals, including known human carcinogens such as silica dust. Silica sand is actually the agent of fracking. That's what is used to hold open the fractures. Fracking refers to fracturing. So when you create the fractures in the shale, bedrock, 
um, with all the water. The water is the club that kind of smashes the bedrock apart. But you have to hold those cracks open for the gas to flow out. And silica sand is, is used for that task. And so both at the point at which that silica sand is mined here in the Midwest to the place where it is actually poured down the borehole, we are exposing people to a known carcinogen. So I come to the conclusion that Fracking is a kind of um, inherently toxic, unmanageable, brutal form of energy extraction, um, and it is posing cancer risks for the population and for workers at every stage, from the moment the drill goes into the ground and um, things like benzene are released into air, all the way to the point at which the gas comes into people's homes and um, some of the gas from shale contains high levels of radon. And so that radon, of course, is the number two cause of lung cancer in the United States after tobacco um, and the number one cause of non-smokers lung cancer. And so when I'm, you know, told that, look, this we live in a fossil fuel era, this is just reality, my response is, well, we once lived in a country where our entire economy was dependent on slave labor, and that was just the reality. I've had many opportunities since I made this call to debate the oil and gas industry on these issues in various fora and have been told um, that I, Sandra Steingraber, cannot face reality. <laughs> <laughs> and that's right. I, I admit that. If, if reality means that, that we are forevermore dependent on fossils, I will not accept that. Um, if I lived in the 1830s, I hope that I would have been a person who refused to accept the reality of slave labor. Um, if I lived in the 1950s, um, I would have hoped that I refused to accept the reality of people smoking cigarettes. I mean, there are things that you can say, we can change reality. And that's what I'm saying. So what are some of the models that might be answers? You've pointed out the questions and you've confronted people about those issues. But what are some of the answers that, that you see? Well, here's where I think there's a lot of really good news. Uh, and first of all, I think that the answers to – well, let me back up a minute and say that I think the environmental crisis is actually much simpler than people imagine it to be. I think when people begin to look at all the environmental problems we face, they feel overwhelmed. And then their second response after overwhelmingness is to feel an incredible paralyzing sense of despair. And that's one of our biggest obstacles to change. But – I think if you imagine it as a simple problem, it, it, it helps because it really what we have here is like a tree with two branches. One of the branches of this tree represents toxic trespass. So that's what we're talking about when we refer to problems like PCB exposure. So people put PCBs, these long-lived chemicals, into our environment, and we continue to have exposures to them. We didn't consent to them, but our bodies end up being used as receptacles for these toxic chemicals. And once a, P a molecule of PCB is in your body, it can um, turn on and turn off genetic switches, raising the risk for cancer. It can sabotage brain development in a child. It can interfere with our hormone system. Um, it can interfere with calcium channels in uterine muscle in a way that shortens human gestation and leads to preterm birth and so forth. So that's the problem of toxic trespass. The other branch of this tree of crisis is climate change. And that refers to the fact that we use our atmosphere as a waste dump, and no one has to pay for that, for the combustion byproducts of, uh, uh, of fossil fuels that make heat-trapping gases that are now um, starting to threaten the plankton in the oceans, which make half of the oxygen we breathe, melting the ice caps, leading to rising sea levels and changing climates, leading to things like uh, increased droughts and floods, and upsetting pollination systems, which provide us one-sixth to one-third of all the food we eat and so forth. So those are all problems that come from climate change. But really, the toxic trespass issue and the climate change issue, these two branches of this tree of crisis, share a similar root, which is this dependency on fossil fuels. Because the fossil fuels are the industrial feedstock for the toxic chemicals, so we can take them into petrochemical labs and turn them into stuff like pesticides and plastics and anhydrous ammonia, PCB molecules, although happily we have banned PCBs. It's one of the few things we have banned. Or we can light those same fossil fuels on fire and run our energy system. So we really have one problem, not many problems. And the problem is we just need to get off of fossil fuels. We need rapid decarbonization of our economy. And the path to chemical reform is to 
runs straight through our energy policy. So if we could get away from fossils to turn on the lights, then we could we wouldn't have all this leftover toxic junk that we use to make our materials economy out of. And then we could begin to embrace the principles of green chemistry and green engineering. Okay, so that said, here's the good news of it. The best science that we have shows us that we could get off fossil fuels in the United States within 20 years uh, and run our economy entirely on renewables if, and this is the big if, we're able to reduce our energy consumption by half. So then the next question is, well, is that a doable project? And the answer is yes, if only because other nations have done it already. Um, and it requires – so in other words, there are other nations where the per capita energy consumption is half of what ours are, and these are places that have high standards of living. So the trick here is investing in uh, energy conservation efforts, innovations in architecture and uh, transportation systems so that we're re redesigning these systems to bring down our energy uh, consumption. And this would be a jobs creation program. This is a doable project. And if there's anything depressing here, it's that there are powerful vested interests that are standing in the way. And, and there's a public that feels so depressed about the whole thing that they refuse to forcefully engage in the political process. So if we could change one of those two things, um, we could move really, fa really rapidly on this. Ideas for changing those things? <laughs> well, I firmly believe that we as a nation need to regain our political skill sets and that the way to not think about these things is to try to create a non-toxic bubble in your own life and try to be, be safe in a toxic world. It's a myth, right? You cannot be safe in a toxic world. For example, most of our exposure to chemical contaminants in drinking water don't actually come from drinking the water. They come from bathing and showering because that's because our lungs and our skin have an amazing surface area. So when you inhale and you absorb across your skin the contaminants in the water, you get a much bigger dose than you do when you actually drink. So taking a 10-minute shower is the exposure equivalent of drinking a half a gallon of tap water. So people who put filters on the ends of their taps or walk around drinking bottled water from Fiji or France are fooling themselves thinking that they're protect, you know, they're keeping these chemicals out of their own body. Unless you wanted to build a whole water filtration reverse osmosis system in the basement of your house, which most of us can't afford and aren't interested in doing, we all have an intimate relationship with our public water system, whether we drink the water or not and whether we want to or not. Every time you run your dishwater, your dishwasher, every time you flush the toilet, um, dry your clothes, wash your clothes, you are evaporating volatile organics from your water into your indoor air. So if you care about drinking water, and you should, uh, as a bladder cancer patient whose, bladder, whose cancer almost certainly came from drinking water, um, I do. But I drink public tap water wherever I go um, because that's what we do, you know, because it's going in my body whether I drink it or not. So if we care about our water, then we need to protect our water. So we need to take a kind of upstream approach to things rather than racing around trying to, you know, vet every goodie bag that your child brings home from every birthday party and, and check every website for every purchase of a lipstick and so forth. I'm not interested in that. So I, what I tell my readers is, you know, we can't become the ecological equivalents of those people in the early 60s who responded to the nuclear threat by building bomb shelters and somehow thinking they would be safe from a nuclear attack if they just had a bomb shelter in the backyard. In fact, as faith leaders and the, the, the peace movement of the time um, correctly argued, digging a bomb shelter made it more likely that that this unthinkable thing would become thinkable and therefore would happen because everyone felt like, well, I've got mine, you know. So, mm -hmm. And instead, if we all let ourselves feel in danger, we were more likely to turn to our political leaders and insist that we defuse the international crisis, which was the only thing that was going to save us. So I don't want us digging bomb shelters anymore. I want us to say we're not safe. Just admit that. And the only thing that can make us safe is to end the manufacturing of these inherently toxic chemicals. The only way to do that is to stop blasting fossils out of the ground. So let's think about a way that each of us can insert ourselves into the political process and, and do that. And for me, as a scientist who lives in upstate New York, 
which where we have a temporary moratorium on fracking given to us by our last governor, our collective job is to invite our current governor, Cuomo, to become a champion of green energy, uh, to turn his back on fracking and convince him that his political future, and we know he's very politically ambitious, that the path to the White House is by investing in um, green energy and renewables and, and a jobs creation program for our rural impoverished community um, that becomes an incubator and a showcase for sustainable ideas that then can be a model for the rest of the nation. Um, and so that's where our focus is um, in New York State. So we have you know, faith leaders against fracking. We have physicians against fracking. Um, we have artists against fracking. And that that is a very has been a very powerful force, the artists, because there's nothing like musicians um, who can help us, who speak to our hearts as well as our minds, and can kind of unite us under common cause and inspire us um, for the future. So I'm talking about um, musicians like Natalie Merchant, who I much admire. She and I had an opportunity to um, work together on a concert last May, along with actors um, Melissa Leo and Mark Ruffalo, who could take the voices of people in affected communities and bring them to life on the stage. And so that showed the power of the dramatic monologue and speaking truth to power, um, which uh, Mark and Melissa do so well. So in the middle of this sort of concert where there's these kind of amazing musicians and these actors doing um, dramatic readings, and I was the kind of Everybody else was rocking out, and I was kind of the scientist <laughs> on stage giving the data and explaining what fracking is and why, you know, what, what the chemicals are and things like that. But that kind of science education in the context of art and music had a real power like I had never actually experienced before. So that could be a model for people who are seeing things in their own communities that they want to change is to gather in the science and the arts and the committed people to hear the message. There are people speaking out based on our economic interests, pointing out the jobs that will actually be destroyed. That's important. Then we have the healthcare community speaking out, and then we have um, people like Lady Gaga tweeting about it, right? And uh, Yoko Ono and Sean Lennon talking about their farm in uh, in the Catskills and the way the the pipelines bringing fracked gas. Um, would be destroying that land. We're talking with Sandra Steingraber, author of Living Downstream, which also has been adapted as as a documentary. She's chosen Natalie Merchant's River to take us to break. What's special about this song? Well, I love everything that Natalie does, and she does in music what I feel like I do as a writer and a biologist, which is see how our relationship to the land and things, um, primordial things like rivers, um, play are, are more than just scenery for our human drama, but they are part of our heart. So the same rivers that run through our land is the blood plasma that runs through our veins. That's how I would try describe it as a biologist. But Natalie, of course, has her own magical take on that on this, and it's, it certainly inspires me in my own work. with Sandra Steingraber, writer, environmentalist, and biologist who writes and works to alert the public to the connections of the changing environment and human health. Production support for Profiles comes from 
Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Personal experience has guided so much of your work and your writing, though we could say that of all of us, I suppose. Still, in your talks, you describe the body burden of carcinogens and how chemicals are found in breast milk. With all of your scientific knowledge, what was it like when you were pregnant and having a baby to know what you knew about the environment? Well, I I felt like I was a walking miracle. You know, I loved pregnancy. I loved labor and delivery. I loved breastfeeding. And had I known how good I was at having babies, I would have had a house full of them, actually. (laughs) But I was 42 when I had my son. My husband and I met when we were a little bit older. So I feel lucky that I have a daughter, Faith, who's now 14, and my son, Elijah, now 11. They're just the lights of my life. That said, I do think I'm wired a little differently than many of my readers in that I wouldn't could nurse a child with one hand and read the data on breast milk contamination with the other and simultaneously experience breastfeeding as a a sacrament between mother and child and a toxic transfer, right? And so, um, but my knowledge of both of those things are true, Um, but neither diminishes the the force and power of the other. So I'm really interested now as as a mother at this moment in human history, in how the environmental crisis is a crisis of parenting. And this is what I'm trying to give voice to. And here is where my experience as a mother of a daughter and a son and my knowledge as a biologist kind of come together. Um, Because as as near as I can see, there, there are two fundamental duties of parenting. So all the tasks of parenting kind of fall into two categories, which is to protect our children from harm, and to plan for their future. And the environmental crisis is undermining both of those things, and in fact, preventing them. The first, to protect our children from harm, can mean childproofing your house, um, calling out your child out of the lake when you hear the distant sound of thunder because you don't want them electrocuted. It could mean, as is in my, the case in my own household, that if you're caught riding your bicycle or skateboard without a helmet, that skateboard or bicycle goes in the barn for a week, right? Um, So I don't need absolute proof as a mother to know my kid's going to get electrocuted by swimming in a lightning storm or that my son's going to get a head injury from riding in traffic without a helmet. I just need to know that that's an inherently dangerous situation. I will take precautionary action to, to prevent harm. However, I am, as I say in Raising Elijah, I'm I'm a conscientious parent, but I'm not a HEPA filter. I can't place my body in between my child's developing brain, immune, and endocrine system and all of the brain poisons, endocrine disruptors, um, and immune toxicants that are circulating in the environment, which get into his air, food, and water. So we know our children are born. We know that there are hundreds of toxic chemicals in umbilical cord blood itself. We know that many of these are developmental toxicants, meaning that they have the power to alter pathways of child development in ways that I try to explicate in uh, Raising Elijah, raising risks for things like asthma, which my son had as a young boy. For allergies, uh, my son carries an EpiPen. That's in, uh, a very, when your child has anaphylactic shock, that's a, you, you enter a very intense form of parenting, right? There are chemicals linked to early puberty in girls. Um, There are chemicals linked to learning disabilities and attention deficit disorders. So all of these things, at the very least, are terribly inconvenient (laughs) if you experience them um, as a parent. At the very most, they are er eroding the very being of our children. You know, their potential is being compromised by these exposures. And there's nothing I can do as an individual mother to stop that that um, exposure from happening, except act as a political person, vigorously inserting myself in the political process to say, look, any chemical that has the ability to extinguish a pregnancy, to sabotage brain development of my child, to serve as a pediatric carcinogen has no place in our economy. And we need to divorce our, our economy's dependency on what, whatever use it is that we're, whatever these chemicals are being used for, it has to stop. 
So that's the only way to, to, do, to do things is for, for parents to act in, in a political way. The other the piece of it, of course, is climate change, um, which is also preventing my ability as a parent to plan for my child's future. Because to have a future, we need some plankton in the oceans, right? And if the plankton are in trouble, which they are now in trouble because of both acidification of the ocean and because of warming of the ocean waters, then the oxygen cycle is in trouble. One out of every four mammals is now heading for extinction. So we're in the midst and, the, and, and we're at the very beginning of a mass extinction of animals. Pollinators are in trouble, and pollination provides so much of the food that we eat. So how can I worry about college funds, and how can I worry about whether my kid is going to be you know, competitive and make it into AP math <laughs> when these problems are at hand? So it is, it is my fundamental job, I think, to in actively engage on these issues. Um, it would be... I would feel I was being remiss as a parent if I, if I didn't. And so that is part of what being a parent continues to, to motivate me as a scientist. But I want to say that all of the scientists that I work with, and I, I, even though I'm not at the lab bench anymore because I work as a science writer now, um, I'm in and out of labs all, all the time, and I have lots of scientist colleagues who are sharing data with me and so forth. They're also animated by very personal reasons, sometimes because of a cancer diagnosis, sometimes because of a child with a learning disability. It's just that being a lab bench scientist kind of pro prohibits you from talking publicly about your motivation. So I don't think I'm unusual in that my autobiographical experiences drives my scientific interests. I just think that I'm lucky enough as a science writer to be able to combine my stories of being a young cancer patient at 20, of being a mom at 40, with my science. And so that's the piece that's unusual. It's not that I somehow care more than my colleagues. No, I'm sure you're right. We're all motivated to be active about something when it affects us personally. But I also think your early life, that there was the bladder cancer diagnosis, but you also got a degree in biology a master's in creative writing, right. and then a PhD in biology. It's as if you were combining the two at an early age to uh, end up doing the kind of work that you're doing now, whether motherhood factors into it or bladder cancer. Uh, everything makes us what we are. But, but studying two sort of diverse disciplines at a young age did the bladder cancer influence that from from that age, or were you just trying on a? How couple about of, I was just confused? Can well, you say it, that, that it sound, you're making it sound easily, far more easily. It could be just confused. Yeah, I didn't have a I didn't have a master plan. You know, I was a very scared twenty year old with cancer. I just wanted to do whatever seemed right at the moment. I didn't, you know, of all human cancers, bladder cancer is the one most likely to recur. Recurs in seventy percent of all patients. I'm now 53, so for 33 years I've been in and out of the hospital every few months. And so I never had, I never felt like I had the luxury of long-range planning. So I did poetry for a while, I did biology for a while, I kept doing those things. It turns out if you live long enough, people stop asking you what you're going to do when you grow up, <laughs> and they somehow presume you had this plan all along, right? So it turns out that, yes, my creative writing and my training as a biologist serves me very well in the work that I do now, but, it, but there was truly no plan. And, you know, as much as I have spoken about my own private life as a cancer patient and taken readers in living downstream back to the moment of my diagnosis, of course, in the film, we can't do that. Um, but what we do in the film is take you into um, the cystoscopic checkup. So I brought the camera crew into um, the room with me when the in interior of my own body is, you know, projected on the big screen television and so forth. So that's kind of all out there. But truthfully, I'm also motivated by a part of my life that uh, I haven't really written about yet, but I hope to, which is my life as an adopted person. And knowing that I was abandoned in a hospital by a mother who was a student uh, who walked into the hospital, gave birth, and walked out by herself, and knowing that I became a ward of the state um, for the first four months of my life and until a family could be found for me, makes me aware that it is the job of government to take care of, of vulnerable people who cannot possibly take care of themselves. And in some cases, the government is tasked with finding a family for an abandoned child. And in some cases, the government is tasked with not poisoning <laughs> 
infants and children and investing in forms of energy extraction that could cause miscarriages or cause birth defects among women who live in, in that area. Now, that's the job of government, is to provide for the security and well-being of all the people, including vulnerable subpopulations. And so I, th I think that part of my identity is also a motivating factor. And, and it played a role, it, the, the adoption piece plays a role in, in the story of Living Downstream because in the both book and the film, I reveal that, you know, my mother and I were co-cancer patients together. She was in her mid-40s and I was 20. And she had breast She had cancer. breast cancer, right. And my aunt went on to die of the same kind of bladder cancer that, that I had. And I had, then I went on to have colon lesions. And my cousin, who's exactly my age, has now, is um, she's doing well, but she's stage three colon cancer. But I'm not related to my family members, you know, my nuclear family or my extended family by chromosomes. And so I'm very interested in the presumption that what runs in families necessarily runs in genes. Um, and, you know, with, had I not known I were adopted, I might presume that somehow I had inherited this predisposition. Um, but in fact, families share many other things in common. We share environment. We share um, airspace. We share drinking water wells. We share diets. We might work in the same aluminum smelters and so forth. And so that's what I think really interested me as a biologist in understanding, trying to shining a light on the environmental piece of things. And when I look at the literature in cancer among adoptees, and it's not a very big or broad literature because there's so much secrecy and shame, you know, that has surrounded adoptions, that adoption is still closed in most states and adoptees are prohibited from knowing the identities of their biological parents. And so that makes it, it blinds researchers, right? Because we can't really go to the biological parents and look at cancer in the biological parents and the adopted parents and look at the adoptee and see who they're more like. But there have been some studies, and those studies do show that cancer among adopted people it more closely tracks whether the adoptive parents have cancer rather than whether the biological parents have cancer. And, and the cancer rates among immigrants it corroborates that. So when you take a look at, you know, uh, Japanese women who moved to the U.S., African women who moved to Israel, Canadian women who moved to New Zealand, and you, you see that the cancer rates quickly assimilate to the place that your adoptive homeland, the place you've moved uh, to, especially one or two generations later. So in other words, environment trumps ethnicity every time in determining cancer risk. So all of these studies, the, the immigrant studies, the adoptee studies, all point to the environment playing uh, a major role in the story of cancer, not the only role. But, but the good, again, there's good news here, right? Because we can't change our ancestors. And, and I don't know who mine are, but, I, <laughs> but you know, even if you do, you can't change your family tree. And so pointing the finger at inherited genes is an absolute dead end in terms of cancer prevention. That's the one thing we can't change. But the environment, people put chemicals into the environment. We can take them out. We can insist on a radical redesign of our materials and energy economy. So I think it is my, it's not only my identity as an ongoing cancer patient who understands firsthand that even when you have a good outcome, it's miserable. Cancer is misery. Um, but also it's my identity as an adopted person that it kind of animates the work I do. I'm also interested in uh, letting listeners know about your blog and the writing that you do seems like every day, every couple of days, there's something <laughs> new there. And and the, the topics you take on are, are interesting, and I think they really reveal the writing side of you that probably would have emerged without the science. I don't know that. But some of the titles recently were um, How to Have a Colonoscopy, The Ecology of Pizza about Organic Food, uh, and you also wrote a poem for the Marcellus, which is the Marcellus shale that everybody, it's so lucrative, everyone wants to practice fracking there. So talk a little about that that side of your day, I guess, when you are um, ruminating about your next topic and how you want to present it the writing process. Well, I'm a slow and miserable writer, actually, and that uh, I'm jealous of those who are fast. And so, uh, for me, I write at night, and I I still pull all nighters. You know, I pulled only one this week. Oftentimes, I do two a week. My limit is every other night. So, Raising Elijah was a book I wrote um, over a hundred and nine day period. 
Um, and I slept every other night um, in, in writing it. So, And I actually pitched a tent in our backyard while I was working on it so I could catch a few hours of sleep during the day, and then the kids didn't have to be quiet in the, in the house. Um, so I go out and sleep for a few hours and go, <laughs> go back to work. And part of that is because, like Rachel Carson, I'm really susceptible to interruption. So I can't have emails streaming in and phone calls and speaking engagements and dealing with the day-to-day world. Plus, my kids are awake. And you know how when you're a mom, it's like there's this inner calm. If your kids are out with their skateboard in the street, helmet or not, <laughs> I'm like part of my brain is engaged right. in listening for the sound of a crash or something. So I can't really focus and kind of get into the words unless – I mean, I don't think I have to write at night. If I was a solitary person, I could write during the day. It's not my favorite thing to do. But nighttime, three in the morning, gives me this uninterrupted hunk of time. Exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's, there's a silence there that I can, I can really, I need. I I write like a poet, um, even though I don't have, you know, prose doesn't allow you kind of line breaks, um, which poets have to create effect, and probably. M- 99% of readers don't even notice. But um, my hope is that it, even though you don't notice the carpentry of what I've done, and, and actually hopefully you don't, but it's just you, there's a, like a, a moment you might take your breath away because you just notice that this is, it makes you feel a certain way or it reminds you of something or it feels dreamlike or so, something is, you know, is is working. So I try to have all aspects of the language kind of firing here. You did mention Rachel Carson, and you've been compared to her, even lauded as the new Rachel Carson, uh, who, of course, was the author of Silent Spring. What kind of responsibility or or impact does that um, carry with you to be compared to her or to be called the new Rachel Carson? Yeah, well, um, she is, of course, my guiding spirit in all this. And Carson was... Um, a biologist and a writer, and she also struggled as to which one was more primary and went to work for a while as a biologist. In her case, she was a public servant in the uh, in the federal agency, the Fish and Wildlife, uh, and then left to work full-time as a writer. And so my trajectory has sort of been similar, only I was uh, an academic biologist and on this sort of tenure track as a biology professor, and then I left to go off and and work full-time as a science writer. And then, of course, we have this cancer diagnosis in common. But she kept hers um, a state secret, right? And, and in fact, her friends were um, absolutely forbidden from saying anything other than that Carson was perfectly fine and healthy. And because she probably correctly presumed that her enemies in industry would use it to impeach her science because she was trying to focus on among other things, the impact of pesticides on human cancer. So she had revealed that she herself was a cancer patient. The thinking was that she would be thought not to be an objective scientist. And happily, those days are over, mostly. So I made the opposite decision, which is to put my own cancer diagnosis right in my book, uh, Living Downstream. Um, And for the most part, my science has not been impeached on the grounds that I'm a cancer patient, so how could I possibly have an objective opinion on this? So I think the 30 years of feminism that lay between her life and my adult life really did open up a space in the culture for women to have authority over their own autobiographies and not have to hide. So that's been a really good good change. Um, that said, I have my own enemies in industry, and they're not above using my cancer diagnosis to cast dispersions. Those kind of criticisms are not done in good faith, and so I'm always trying to turn those who um, are criticizing me to the data. So if you want to have a talk about the evidence, let's just talk about the evidence. And I feel like I can win any debate on on those grounds. What's next for you? I know you're in the middle of, of pursuing the fracking and your foundation and, and working on that. What else is out there? That's it. That's that's my magnificent obsession. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't look beyond that. And and also, you know, I'm a cancer patient. I don't look too far in the future, although it's funny to have kids who are now growing up and it's like, wow, you know, this is this actually is, requires longevity to have, <laughs> to have <laughs> children who are growing up. And I should probably plan better. But I tend to think in a short-term way. So every day I ask, what can I do today to close the door to fracking in New York and to make it more likely that we will pursue another path? And that's what I'm doing. Um, 
and I there's a great joy in in doing this work. Um, and and no two days are similar. So not so long ago, I had some people show up on my front porch to say that the next day they were going to be uh, chaining themselves to a fence and committing civil disobedience to draw attention to the actions of a company um, who has bought land only 20 minutes or so from my own house and is repurposing depleted salt caverns for the storage of fracked gas and for the storage of other gases that come up with the methane, which is natural gas, um, things like propane and butane and ethane. Um, And, uh, of course, this raises huge dangers for us. These things are explosive. Um, They're being stored right on the banks of a uh, Seneca Lake, the the largest lake in uh, New York State, source of drinking water for 100,000 people. And in order to empty these caverns for the gas, um, very toxic brine is being pumped out of them, put into impoundments on the banks of of this lake. And there have already been leaks, killing lots of vegetation. Um, there will be flare stacks that put that regulate the pressure, um, that put formaldehyde into the air. Tanker trucks hauling hazardous materials and explosive materials will be filling our rural roads. There's always already one catastrophic accident involving a Subaru and one of these tanker trucks closed down the roadways for several hours. These are the roads my children are going to drive on, right, when they learn to drive. So so these people showed up um, and invited me to come the next day to bear witness to what they were going to do. And, of course, they were uh, going to be calling the press so that I could talk to the press about, you know, the health effects of, be- of formaldehyde and um, while they were committing this act of civil disobedience, and so I did, and then ended up driving the car of one of the arrested women, who's a nurse, down to the jail, so that when she was processed and released, um, she, you know, her car would be there. And while I was driving, uh, she's exactly my age, and so and her car looks like the inside of my car, you know, like <laughs> kind of a busy mom or inside of a car. There's ski poles in the back, and there's, you know, a to-do list, and uh, her wallet was laying on the seat, and there's her cell phone, and so I ended up writing about that um, as, um, you know, one of my blog entries. And so speaking truth to power, speaking truth to powerlessness in communities that are on the receiving end of these things is part of what I do. And then, you know, the next day I might be providing testimony um, before a Senate subcommittee of some kind and presenting, you know, in a very sober way, here's what we know about roadway exhaust and asthma, and here's what we know about these fleets of fracking trucks and the compressors and condensers are creating the kind of air pollutants that trigger childhood asthma. So there's a lot of elements to this fight, and there's a lot of really amazing people involved in the fight. So it feels like an honor to be part of this. You know, I I would think that if I were living in upstate New York in the 1830s, that I would be one of the people running the Underground Railroad. I would like to think I wouldn't have turned my back on the horror that was slavery and just kind of Felt, feel like it was so depressing I didn't know what to do with about it, so I would do nothing. I would hope I would be taking action. But I don't. I live now, and so, you know, this is my task of my generation. And I'm really animated by both of my adoptive parents. My father had to go off and fight Hitler at the age of 18. His sole purpose of his generation was to defeat global fascism, and he was still talking about that at the time of his death. And it was hard to live with a father who was still fighting a war that had ended long ago, but now I, now that he's gone, I kind of understand that from a different perspective, that no matter how damaging it was to him personally, that this was a noble struggle in his mind. You know, you have to pay attention to signs of atrocity, and you don't make a decision about whether to fight based on whether you think you can win. You simply do the right thing. So anyone who looks at the fight against fracking would say you would, they wouldn't bet the farm on our side, you know, our team. Um, but nevertheless, this is, to me, the right thing to do. And, and I'm, and it's part of my values that I want to teach my children that you stand up and do the right thing. And with some creative ingenuity and with a little luck, I mean, what Martin Luther King Jr. I think said is true, that the arc of history sort of bends toward truth and human rights. And I, I think we'll get there. I do. We've been speaking today with Sandra Steingraber, whose visit to Bloomington was coordinated by several departments of Indiana University including the Office of Women's Affairs, Women in Science and Technology, the Themester at the College of Arts and Science, School of Public and Environmental Affairs, and the IU School of Public Health. 
Your musical selection for us to wrap up is once again Natalie Merchant, Because the Night. What's special about that song? I think Natalie's voice comes through really clear, and her voice, in my mind, is um, incredibly rich. She has all these tonal things going on that I think is especially evident uh, in this song. And again, um, like the river, you know, the night is something that, uh, well, for me, it's what, it's what I write. So it's part of my own uh, creative process. Sandra Steingraber, thank you for being with us today. This is Gina Asher for Profiles. Thanks for listening. Take me now, baby, here as I am. Pull me close and try and understand. Desire is hunger, is the fire I breathe. Love is a banquet on which we feed The program you just heard was recorded in October of 2012. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.